can trigger a very big reaction. And so that's one example where, like, say you text someone and you don't hear back from them for a few hours, you know, the mind can go a lot of places and think, like, this person doesn't want to talk to me, they hate me, they never want to hear from me again. What is splitting? How can BPD even develop? What is the biosocial model? Dr. Juliet McClendon is a clinical psychologist, and I am so pleased to have them as my first guest to be able to bring you their clinical perspective on the development, assessment, and treatment of BPD. Let's get into it. Quiet, not silent. friend Jules and they are a clinical psychologist and I did not know this because we were friends first which is great yes because I'm excited to have my friend Jules on to talk about how BPD develops Jules could you tell me a little bit about your professional background yes absolutely hi Um, So I'm a clinical psychologist, like you said. I did my training at Washington University in St. Louis, and I focused there on a few different things, but particularly personality disorders, personality, um, health, and racial disparities. Um, Since then, I did an internship at um, Massachusetts Mental Health Center, And there I worked with a lot of people with serious mental illnesses, including BPD, um, many of whom were very low income or even homeless, um, and spent my time during that year on a like full DBT team and also um, on in a um, partial hospital program um, for DBT. So I did a lot of work um, with people with BPD and also um, uh, you know, full on DBT. Um, and then from there I went to the VA where I, um, focused more on doing trauma research and learning more about PTSD and treating PTSD with evidence-based treatments. And then from there I took a little side trek into tech. And then from there, now I'm in private practice and I'm um, working with people with all kinds of different presenting complaints and um, ranging from like emotional sensitivity and like BPD, like traits, mood instability, all the way to like depression and anxiety disorders. Um, So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Amazing. So Jules, uh, I wanted to ask you about like the development of BPD because I know that a lot of people online, like there's a lot of literature online, there's a lot of discussion online about how BPD only stems from childhood trauma, and I know that that is wrong. And I wanted to mm-hmm. hear your opinion and your thoughts and your perspectives on that. 
Um, I do think there's a bit of a um, misunderstanding of how BPD develops um, in that in that area of talking about trauma. I think some of it is because of how people define trauma. Like everyone defines, or a lot of people define trauma differently, and it's defined differently, like within the profession and in the DSM, than it might be for your average person. And so, um, really, like the main model that is used to understand the development of BPD is the biosocial model from Marsha Linehan and who, Marsha Linehan who also created DBT, which is the main treatment for BPD. And that model suggests that there's actually both like genetic and sort of nature and nurture components to BPD. Um, And so the main environmental or nurture aspect um, that contributes to the development of BPD is an invalidating environment. And so what that basically means is that your emotions, your maybe even your personality traits or things that are inherent to you are invalidated. So they're you as the person who maybe has developed BPD are um, like uh, internalizing and perceiving that your emotions are maybe like too much or you shouldn't have any emo- show any emotion at all or there's something that is not right about you in some way. And this can happen through trauma, absolutely, 100%. I mean, trauma is like the most extreme form of invalidation that you can experience. But people can also experience invalidation from like a mismatch in their family. Like, um, you know, if somebody's family, (laughs) something just popped into my head. Like if you have a family full of earth signs, Oh my god, astrology, let's And go. you're a water sign. <laughs> let's and, go. you know, if you have a family, like, that is very, like, practical, realistic, logical thinking people, and you're somebody who's more emotional or creative, like, you might not fit into that family, and you may grow up feeling like there's something wrong with me, like, I'm not the same as my family, there's something different about me, and that can be also invalidating. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be, like, invalidation perpetrated against you on purpose by somebody who doesn't have your interest at heart. Um, And it doesn't have to be trauma, but it does have to be something that makes you feel like you can't really trust your internal experience. Um, And that can happen in a lot of different ways. And so I think that trauma is the way that is most like sort of known and talked about, but there are also other ways that people can feel invalidated in their life. That makes total sense. And that's why, like, the the narrative that you find online that BPD is solely traumagenic or whatever, that really, that was harmful for me in my recovery because I was constantly Mm. like, well, why do I have BPD? Do I have BPD? Like, like what is the, not that my identity revolves around having BPD, but it just hindered my recovery in that I couldn't, I was so confused, like I didn't have clarity, you know? So it's important to emphasize like the nuance around what an invalidating environment actually is and how trauma is just an extreme form of that, but it's only one type of an invalidating environment, so. Yeah, well, and I think like your experience is not uncommon and it makes a lot of sense that 
uh, you know, to say that only trauma can lead to BPD can be invalidating for people for whom that's not the case. Right. And so you start to think like, well, I, I don't I didn't necessarily experience trauma growing up or what I see as trauma. So, you know, it starts to make you question whether you're really like what you're experiencing is really real or, you know, whether you really um, have this diagnosis, you know, or whatever. Um, so I think it's important for people to understand like what invalidation really is and how it exists on a spectrum. Now, on the flip side the of the biosocial model, like we talked about uh, nurture, what about the nature aspect of it? What about that part of the biosocial model? Yeah. So the nature part of it is, um, like within that model, is basically that we, like we're all born with a certain temperament. Um, so very, very young infants have certain basic kind of personality traits when they're born and as they start to develop. Um, from a very young age and so for some people like one uh, one aspect of temperament is emotional sensitivity and so people can be born people are born with again it's a spectrum different levels of emotional sensitivity and people who are more emotionally sensitive um there's a few things that happen um they can get frustrated or upset more easily by like smaller things for example so like um you know like for example my son who is a very emotionally sensitive child he can he was like trying to draw something and he wasn't getting it perfectly right and that really frustrated him he started crying and it can be easy for a caregiver to look at that and be like this is a small thing like get over it why are you crying right and that's invalidating um and if that sort of is chronically what that child experiences then it leads to certain sort of behaviors or outcomes um so that's an example of sort of what like emotional sensitivity can look like, what invalidation can look like. And so for caregivers, it's so important to really try and validate your child's feelings, even if it seems like it doesn't make sense to you why they're upset. What can happen is that when a child both is emotionally sensitive and in an invalidating environment, um, it means that a few things happen. That child, when they're experiencing emotions, they're often told to like get over it or, you know, it's not right in some way. And so they have to keep escalating and escalating like how they express their feelings because ultimately what that child wants is for that parent to validate them and to be able to help them regulate. And so they need help. And so they're asking for help. They ask a little bit, you know, quietly, like, oh, this is so frustrating. Or like maybe they start crying. Um, if that doesn't work, maybe it turns into a tantrum. If they're still being invalidated, maybe it could even turn into hitting, you know, like it just keeps escalating until that child gets what they need. And it's not like, it's just that child learning that they have to keep increasing how intensely they respond to something that is upsetting to them in order to get the kind of care and validation and and co-regulation that they need. Um, and eventually, if this happens enough, then that child, or maybe it's they're an adult at this point, sort of skips the quieter part sometimes and goes straight to like the intense expression part. And I know you talk a lot about quiet BPD and in quiet BPD, it's like that escalation still happens and that intensity still happens, but it's more kind of internalized 
Whereas in other forms of BBD, we can see it more externalized as like anger or things like that. Um, and so that is sort of how this intensity of emotion and responsiveness to um, like triggers, for example, um, how that becomes so intense over time. Right, because it's it's been like a result of not just conditioning, but just like a child learning, okay, this is how I get my needs met based on my yes. environment. I have adapted to the environment that I was in for so long that this is how I get my needs met. And then it becomes solidified, exactly. it becomes internalized. We don't need to go over the whole like diagnostic criteria for BPD, but I am interested in knowing like, how is that assessed in clinical practice? That's a great question. So I, um, when I have clients who experience like a lot of like um, big mood changes throughout the day where like their emotions shift and change where they experience really intense emotions or maybe they have really um, intense relationships or I notice a fear of abandonment, like whatever it may be, I typically like I will typically use DBT skills with those people. And so what I what I always do is I'm like, OK, hey, we're going to do DBT skills. This was originally created for borderline PD because, of course, you know, like people are like if you're going to be curious, you're going to look it up and find out. So I just like say that up front. Um, I don't know if you have BBT because we haven't like done any assessment, but if you'd like to do an assessment, I'm happy to. And so the way that I assess for BPD is, um, first of all, like you have to have a lot of like, I think clinical understanding of like what BPD symptoms really look like, because again, BPD symptoms are kind of like personality traits that exist on a spectrum, right? So like everyone has some mood instability, their mood or their emotions change throughout the day. But for somebody who has BPD, it's much more extreme and um, intense, right? So like you have to understand this is on a spectrum. So you're gonna have people who maybe ex exhibit some a, amount of a trait, but it, maybe it's not to the level that it would be to diagnose that trait, for example. So basically what it looks like is a bunch of questions that cover like the main criteria. I ask a question, for example, do you, it, this is not word for word, but like, do you often experience lots of up and ups and downs in your relationships? And then I basically ask the person to tell me about like their relationships and what those have looked like and get information and see if it fits into what that criteria is really trying to get at, which is oftentimes the like idealization and then devaluation of people or splitting. It's black and white thinking about other people. Um, which we can talk more about that if you want to, but that's just an example of, um, and so we go through basically all the criteria and I determine whether they're like meeting the criteria that like the level of that trait that's necessary for a BPD diagnosis. And then they have to have a certain number of traits. And so typically what I've seen is like people meeting maybe for some of the traits, but not all. And so we see that like, DBT will be helpful, but you're not necessarily needing a diagnosis for BPD, or maybe you are, and then we can try like DBT light, so to speak, like going over skills in individual therapy, but then like maybe a group would be helpful as well, or maybe even like a full DBT like um, service if we can find that for you. So that's sort of how I approach it in my practice. For a BPD diagnosis, those traits do exist on a spectrum and they need to be like 
at a level, would you say, like, really, really debilitating? Yeah, like, from a clinical perspective, in order for anything to be a disorder, it has to significantly disrupt your life. And it has to be in multiple areas of your life for a personality disorder. So we have to see, like, basically um, challenges in, like, multiple areas of life. So it can't just be your internal, like, emotional states. It has to also be your identity or your relationships um, work, you know, things like that. So it has to significantly disrupt your life. Yes. Um, both. And, and sometimes that can be like a combination of how it disrupts your life and how you, you experience that and maybe how other people experience it as well. Like how it affects other people. Yeah. And that's especially important for like other personality disorders where the individual may be less distressed, but the people like in their lives or their families like are distressed, are more distressed by their, like sort of personality disorder traits um like a narcissistic personality disorder or something like that yeah that makes sense are there other ways that bpd differs from those types of personality disorders because there are like 10 personality disorders right yeah BPD is in is in cluster B. So there's three clusters of like kind of similar types of pers uh, personality disorders. So cluster B is sort of the um what do they call it? Ugh, honestly, I don't really like what they call it. Like dramatic erratic. Mm, yeah, cluster, that's weird. Right? It's kind of Yeah. So it it goes with narcissistic PD, antisocial PD, histrionic PD and borderline PD. And so these are like a lot of like histrionic and borderline were really like historically kind of these personality disorders or like um, mental health problems that were kind of like under the umbrella of hysteria, you know, back in Freud's day. And so that's often why we see like a much more diagnosis of histrionic PD and borderline PD in women because they were really based on, their their development of the diagnosis was based on women. Um, but anyway, that's kind of an aside. Uh, but yeah, so BPD differs from other personality disorders in cluster B in a few different ways. So if we think about like narcissistic personality disorder, there's a lot of ways in which they differ. But one big way is empathy. So in narcissistic PD, there's really a lack of empathy and a, and, a, and a difficulty experiencing empathy, whereas in BPD, we often see like hyper empathy, people sort of experiencing other people's emotions very strongly and being very attuned to other people's emotions. Um, another difference we see between narcissistic PD and BPD is actually like the depth of emotion. So people with BPD experience emotions as very intense and very deep, whereas people with narcissistic PD experience much more shallow emotions. And same with antisocial PD um, and same with histrionic PD. So that's one thing that I think really differentiates BPD from all of the other cluster B disorders is the depth and intensity of emotion that people with BPD experience. Um, and I think often that can be really overlooked in some ways, like because people with BPD, because they're like their emotions can change so quickly, like people can see it as very shallow and sort of not really real emotions. But in fact, they're like really intense emotions that actually last longer than typical and that take longer to recover from than typical. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I find that I have just this heightened baseline 
and when I stray from that baseline, it takes me a very long time to return to baseline. Um, and I know that that's not just an Avery experience. That is for sure, like, as a, like tons of people with BPD I know, that's what they notice as well. It takes a very long time to return to baseline. And it comes back to, like, why are you so upset about that still? Like, why aren't you over that? It's like, okay, yes. I'm still pissed off. And it's just, you know, maybe the same thing that you're pissed off about normally. Like, let's say, I don't know, like, like when I worked at Starbucks, for example, um, and customers treat you like crap when you work at Starbucks or just in service industry in yeah. general, like someone mm -hmm. without BPD that I would work with, they would get pissed off at the same customer that's like being rude and just awful. Um, but it would take me, I would be so confused. I'm like, why are you an hour later, like forgetting about this customer? I'm like, it takes me several days, sometimes even a week to stop being pissed about the fact, like the way that customer treated me. Um, like yeah. we're both pissed off, but like, why is it taking me a week to return to baseline? This is really like, then I was diagnosed with BPD and I'm like, oh, this makes sense now. It takes yeah. me a very long time to return. I eventually return to baseline, but it's like, oh my God. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And it's so like, so people with BPD experience their emotions very differently than people who don't have BPD, whether they have another personality disorder or not. Do you find that there's any like particular challenges associated with treating BPD? Yeah, and it depends on the person again, you know, but I think that there can be, um, I think that the therapeutic relationship takes on a unique meaning um, when working with, with um, someone with BPD because relationships are so important to people, people with BPD and there is that intense fear of abandonment that um, you know makes that therapeutic relationship really um, important to helping somebody recover, but also um, you just have to take a lot of care in that relationship. So somebody like commented on one of my videos the other day saying their therapist, or no, it was like a live saying their therapist ghosted them. And this person has BPD and I was like, that's literally the worst thing that you can do as a therapist for somebody who has BPD. You know, at least give them a call and explain to them what's going on. You know, like it's so harm. It can be so harmful. These things that maybe seem innocuous or like they wouldn't like be as much of a big deal for our, somebody else can really harm somebody with BPD. Um, I think that there's also it's really also important to assess like the level of care that somebody with BPD needs because it can vary like it can vary all the way down from like outpatient with just like an individual therapist outpatient is totally um, the amount of support that they need or it could be that um, they need like a partial hospital program which is like a day program that lasts like throughout like you know each day of the week people go and then go home in the evening or um, that they need more of a DBT team environment where there's multiple people there to support them and they can like, you know, call their therapist and get in the moment help with using skills and maybe also have a group element. So like there are a lot of, or, or maybe somebody is better served by focusing on trauma therapy first rather than addressing BPD traits. Like it depends and somebody can have BPD and not be suicidal. Um, that is a trait of BPD, but it's not required for a diagnosis. 
And so if you do have somebody who is um, endorsing like suicidality or suicidal thoughts, then you want to think about like, what's the best level of care for this person? If they're not, what's the best level of care? You know, so that's another, I think, consideration that comes in with, I think, you know, most people who are coming to therapy, you have to assess that. But with somebody who's coming in with BPD, I think that it becomes even more important because um, because of uh, the risks that are inherent that come along with somebody who has um, BPD and some of the sort of more risk-taking behavior that can occur and also some of the suicidality that can occur as well. I wanted to ask you actually about, can I ask you about adverse childhood experiences? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, ACE scores are, like you said, adverse childhood experiences, and they basically um, ask people about different, challenging, difficult, painful childhood experiences they may have had, you know, and it really gets at whether people have experienced like trauma of some kind or neglect. Um, And the higher your score, kind of the, you know, the greater risk you're at of like having developed trauma or PTSD or other mental health disorders. Um, so ACE scores are often used. I use them in my practice. They're often used in um, like primary care as well, or they're being more frequently used in primary care. And I don't know, I, I haven't looked at the research uh, of the literature looking at ACE scores and BPD and whether they're connected. I imagine that they are. And that if somebody, you know, the higher an ACE score, somebody has the higher risk they are at for BPD because we're seeing that abusive and validating, those abusive and validating experiences. Um, And so, but the thing about ACE scores is that they're more sort of generally going to tell us something about somebody. They're not going to tell us specifically if they have like a mental health diagnosis or anything like that, but they're going to give us an idea of some potential risk factors that may exist for that person for a mental health diagnosis. I, I will, I ask about adverse childhood experiences before even getting to thinking about diagnosing BPD. Um, so for sure, like if somebody has a lot of adverse childhood experiences, I might like tend to think more like they may be at higher risk for BPD, but at the same time, like they, it may be that they're at high risk for depression or anxiety or, any number of things. Um, And so it's not specific. Um, But if I do see a higher ACE score, then I will definitely like think, okay, what might be going on here? Like what might we see as a diagnosis? Um, What should I sort of assess for and look at? Um, But somebody can have a low ACE score and still meet criteria for BPD. So when it comes to developing like a support system, have you ever worked with like loved ones or like family members in kind of advising them like, okay, this is how you can support this person. That's a great question. That's something that's really important for people, for everyone is having a strong support system. And so I always assess that with my clients when I first start working with them. I'm always, I always ask them about social support and what their support system looks like. And if they'd like that to be different, I've, I have somewhat worked with families before but what I found is that a lot of my clients that have had BPD have been more estranged from their families. And I'm not saying that that's like a BPD thing or anything like that, but 
I would say that I haven't had as much opportunity to work with people's families um, when I've uh, worked with people with BPD um, as I have maybe when I've worked more with people with like schizophrenia or like psychotic disorders. Oftentimes the people with BPD that I've worked with oftentimes have experienced trauma and it's been like at the hands of their family. And so a lot of times there is that kind of estrangement there. Um, but I think that if there, if I was working with somebody who did have and felt like they had some support from their family, that I would definitely want to explore that and then potentially like have a family member join a session, talk with them about how to support, um, their family member or like a, a partner or whoever it might be, um, in their recovery. Um, for sure. I think that's really crucial, especially if the person like lives with, you know, certain individuals who can be a support. I'm wondering, like, if a patient doesn't quite have that support system, eventually they're going to have to leave treatment. They're going to have to move on from, like, treatment and be, like, they still need a support system. So is there anything that you kind of do to help them cultivate a support system outside of treatment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a really important part of treatment. Um, and... Some of that is around strengthening existing relationships. So like deepening relationships, being able to find ways to open up to people about how you're feeling more, who are already in your life, but maybe who you haven't opened up to as much or you haven't sought support from them as much. So that's part of it. Um, another part of it is, and, and part of that, what I was just talking about in terms of deepening and strengthening existing relationships, a lot of like interpersonal effectiveness type skills come into play there. Um, in terms of like, how do you ask for what you want? How do you set boundaries and say no? How do you, um, you know, negotiate for what you need in an effective way? And then part of it is also, how do you build up like a new support system? And some of that is like, how do you engage in hobbies? And, you know, um, like, how do you um, find things that you're passionate about and do those things and meet people who have a similar passion to you? Um, a lot of what I really focus on with all my clients, but especially clients with BPD is develop like creating a life worth living. And so a lot of that is relationships and social support. Um, and so, yeah, we absolutely talk about how can you build up your existing support system and how can you add people to your support system? What are the fears there? How do we work through things like, like splitting? How do we work through things like, you know, um, being like afraid to share, you know, about what you're going through, you know, what are the barriers that are getting in the way of having the kind of support system that you want? And then how do we like overcome those and problem solve those things together? Um, because yeah, and, and a lot of like skill, you know, skill building is really about how do we help you develop the skills that you need to take care of yourself so that you can like leave therapy one day you know, yeah. like as soon as possible, you know, we don't, you don't need to be in therapy necessarily for years and years and years. And sometimes people take breaks and come back, um, which, which is totally fine. Um, but like, if you've been in therapy for like four, five, six, ten 10 years, and you feel like you still need your therapist, then I think there's more your therapist can be doing to help you be independent and be able to like take care of yourself and integrate the things that you're learning into your daily life so that, you know, they just become natural part of you rather than needing to rely on an external person to help you 
um, you know, be able to use those skills. Yeah, like the goal isn't to have your therapist just like tell you what to do. You're, they're just kind of shining a flashlight on the path you need to go. And then eventually yeah. it's like, okay, training wheels are off. Go, be free. Live yeah. your life. And it's like, yeah, and it's like, come back if you need help. And we yeah. can, you know, and then like, and, and like, if you come back and you need help again, it doesn't have to be a year because you already have so many skills. You already have so much going that like, maybe you come back and do like a few months of a group or maybe you come back and you see your therapist for three to six months. I mean, these are, these are like completely made up timelines, but the point is like coming back to therapy after you've had a course of therapy and felt like you've made progress doesn't mean that you have like completely lost all your progress. It just means that you need a little bit of support of specific, like specifically professional support to help you like get back on track. So when I was first diagnosed with BPD, I did about eight months of DBT with my psychologist individually. And then, you know, I reached a level where I was like doing really good. I was stable. And my psychologist was like, okay, you know what? You've done really well. Go celebrate. Be free. If you need help, come back. And I was I was just like at this point where I was just like, yeah, I did it. I kicked BPD's ass and I never need to go back to therapy. Woo! And then <laughs> I got into a really abusive relationship mm. and I got PTSD and I phoned up my th- my psychologist. I'm like, hey, I need help again. I yeah. fucked up. And she was like, you didn't fuck up and you didn't fail and I'm here to help you and we'll we'll get through it. And yeah. I realized like, okay, just because I need to go back to therapy doesn't mean that like I'm just this epic failure and it doesn't mean that I need to start DBT all over again. It doesn't mean yeah. that you're just starting right back at the bottom and you have to do it all over again. It just means like you're allowed to ask for help when you're struggling. Um, so 100%. recovery doesn't mean that you're never going to struggle or need help ever again. Um, and I had to learn that. So I'm yeah. glad you said that. Splitting is technically not really like a clinical term, right? Well, it stems out of black and white thinking. People are either all good or all bad. And this can happen with other people and also happen with the self. Like we can feel like I am God's gift to the earth and then feel like I'm the, I'm just a piece of trash. So that can happen internally too. Um, but what, yeah. So what happens is that people may see someone as all good and idealize them. Like when they first maybe get into a relationship with somebody and they like, you know, we're in the honeymoon period and sort of see this person as like completely perfect and not flawed in any way. This really kind of like extreme sort of black and white thinking. And then, um, the person with BPD can get triggered in some way by that person or fear that they're going to be abandoned. And then sort of it can flip and they can sort of see that person as like horrible, an asshole, like, you know, sort of see them as totally bad. And it's really like, again, an adaptive mechanism. So it's a, it's an, it's a coping skill. It's a way of protecting the self from the extreme excruciating pain of abandonment. Right. So if we like think somebody is a piece of crap, then if they abandon us, we're not going to care. 
You know, that's what it feels like. And so it's really like protective. It's a really protective mechanism. Um, and, and then there can also be like sort of more avoidant kind of behavior where it's like you're devaluing somebody. And so then you break things off with them, um, like to sort of, you know, leave them before they can leave you. And it's not necessarily like conscious. It's not conscious, you know, that this is happening. It's kind of this really like internal protective mechanism that goes into action when there's a threat, a perceived threat. Perceived threat is a really important thing to know because there isn't always a threat of abandonment, right? Like it's not always mm -hmm. an actual abandonment happening. So yeah. what, is, what does it actually mean if it's just a perceived threat? So people with BPD oftentimes are very, very good at under, like picking up on other people's emotions and like are very, very in tune with other people's emotions because um, when you grow up in an invalidating environment, you have to be really good at knowing how people are going to respond to you so that you know the best way to behave to get what you need. Right. And like, again, this is not super conscious. This is just like, these are like mechanisms that develop over time. And so, so people with BPD can be very um, sensitive to like what people say, their facial expressions, how they respond, how long it takes them to respond and things like that. And so can get triggered. It's again, that emotional sensitivity, like something very small can trigger a very big reaction. And so that's one example where like, say you text someone and you don't hear back from them for a few hours, you know, the mind can go a lot of places and think like this person doesn't want to talk to me. They hate me. They never want to hear from me again. And then that can lead to the devaluation um, of that person in order to protect the self from being or feeling abandoned. Um, even if that's not the facts of the situation, it's, but it's what we're experiencing. Right. So it's not always what's actually happening. It's just kind of BPD. I like to say BPD brain doing its thing where it's like, okay, okay, this doesn't match the facts, but your body and your brain are like, no, this is real. This is real. This is real. Yes. It's not, they're not abandoning you. I have to remind myself this every time I like, I have a few friends that are just not they don't text me often and that's okay they're mm -hmm. off doing their own thing in their own life and sometimes a lot of time will pass where they're not responding or they're not reaching out and bpd brain is like they're abandoning you they hate you they think that you're a piece of shit like you should never talk to them again they they're they don't they don't care about you and I have to remind myself, okay, that's not the facts. I'm like, like, how do I know that they're thinking this? Like, I can't read their yeah. mind. Um, so I have to kind of <laughs> remind BPD brain, like, yeah. can you, no, this is a perceived abandonment. This is not real abandonment. Okay. Yeah. It's frustrating. And, but I think it is important to remember that like it was, it's there to protect. It was there to protect you at a certain point in your life and you just don't need it anymore. But it's they're trying to protect you like this, like reaction of the body and the mind, like this is real. This is real. It's like, like better safe than sorry. Right. Better off that I think this person's abandoning me and I'm wrong and I just end it now than that I be right and they are abandoning me and I let it happen. Right. So it's kind of like it really is complicated. And 
um, you do have to do you. I mean, you've done a lot of work, obviously, Avery, to like really get to a point where you can start questioning some of those things for yourself and like really look at the facts and see what's true and what is that sort of protective reaction. I'm sure maybe you get this with patients because I know I've done it where I was first learning how to challenge the black and white thinking and I felt guilty. Like every time, mm -hmm. like once I got to a point where I knew what was a kind of a BPD behavior or like a coping mechanism, um, I would feel guilty. I would feel shame when I, when my brain was doing that or when I was unconsciously resorting to this behavior. And you know, it, it took a while to unpack that shame, like, okay, you know, I'm not an evil person, I'm not a shitty person, because I, my brain has resorted to these coping mechanisms, you know, it, yeah, it, these helped me survive the environment that I was in for so long, and now it's just not effective, it's not, there's no morals that need to be assigned to these yeah. things, right? So, exactly, you know, um, I'm not, I had to remind myself, like, okay, I'm not a bad person just because I'm, you know, having a lapse in black and white thinking. Um, it just, those, those things are no longer effective for me. And it takes a while to work through them and develop yeah. more effective skills. And that's okay. Yeah, 100%. And it takes time because it's like, if you've spent 25 years using these coping mechanisms, like, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time to be able to get a handle on them with new ones yeah. and replace them with new ones. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, this has been a really good conversation. Um, I don't yeah, know what you have awesome. next to do. I don't know when you need to go next, but if there's anything that you want to just talk about. I guess what I'll say is if you think that you might be experiencing BPD or like you can check out zencare.co or psychologytoday.com to find a therapist. You can filter for people who use DBT or other kinds of therapies that you're interested in, or you can filter for um, uh, people who focus on BPD or emotional sensitivity and find a therapist in your area. Um, yeah. The other thing is like... Um, you know, thoughts of suicide and even suicide attempts and things like that are very common in BPD. And um, one thing I wish that providers would, one thing I wish that we had as a therapy community that was better is people being better trained to actually talk about suicide with their clients because we're very poorly trained about that. And a lot of times the like go-to is like, you need to go to the hospital when really like somebody just needs to talk about how they're feeling because suicidal thoughts are like, again, another coping mechanism for being in so much pain that it, that feels like it's never going to stop. And oftentimes if people have someone they can talk to about those thoughts and not have to hide them because they're afraid they're going to get sent to the hospital, it can make such a big difference. So um, that's how I try to approach those kinds of things with my clients, knowing also that there are times when, you know, people do need to go to the hospital. Um, so, you know, being real about that, but also just understanding that, like, passive suicidal thoughts 
oftentimes just need to be talked about and processed with somebody who can listen and understand. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it sounds like you're actually consciously assessing the risk that somebody is to themselves. Yes. You know, like, because passive and active thoughts are just, they're just not the same thing. No. Right? Like, so, you know, so many TikToks I see of people being like, I can't be forthright with my therapist or my mental health provider because... Uh, if I do that, like, uh, they're gonna, they're gonna send me away. They're gonna send me away. And uh, what do I do? Right. And so the, those yeah. thoughts, they, there's no space, there's no safe space for them to process it. Mm-hmm. So of course it's going to eventually just escalate and get worse. Yeah. It just, you exactly. know, um, so I agree that it, you know, mental health professionals, they do need to really address like, okay, we're not really talking and dealing with suicidal thoughts properly here we're just like placing the same solution oh call an ambulance okay yeah so you're just shoving the problem off to somebody else who is probably even less equipped to deal with it uh yeah exactly and and then uh, honestly at times like re-traumatizing people um through that experience yeah yeah um, I mean, not even to mention the therapists who, like, refuse to work with people with BPD. I can't. I, like... Yeah. No, let's actually talk about this. Let's talk about this, too. There's been a lot of, like, talk about that re- lately online. I want to hear just, like, your opinions on that as well. Because, obviously, you work with people with BPD, so you don't have an issue with it. Like, you understand. You're well-versed in issues that revolve around people with BPD have you had colleagues or just like people you've like witnessed or whatever say like I refuse to work with people with BPD like well like what's going on there yeah I've known of like I I don't have any like close friends or anything that would say that because actually most of my friends who are therapists work with people with BPD um but um it's definitely something I've heard people with BPD experiencing and also, like, heard about therapists who were like, I will not work with certain populations. And, like, to, like, look, that's legitimate. You don't want to work with a population or with people where you don't feel equipped to offer them the best kind of care. Totally understand that. But, like, say that. <laughs> say it's because you're not competent. Like, not because there's something wrong with the person with BPD. And I think part of it is that people assume that if you have BPD, you're, like, actively suicidal. And I understand a therapist wanting to provide a higher level of care for that person, in which case you should get them a referral to a higher level of care. Um, but to just say, I just don't work with this group of people because, um, you know, it's just too much is like so invalidating. It's um, insulting. Um, and it's just not true. Like you don't want to work with this group with a group of people because you're not competent to serve them. And that's okay. And you can say that. Like, it's all right. Um, And not everyone with BPD is actively suicidal. So there may be people with BPD that, you know, if that's the reason you don't want to work with people with BPD, there may be people with BPD that you can work with, you know? So it's just, um, it's frustrating that it's like people are just kind of rejected from treatment and not really given an explanation or they're told it's because of them. And then that just like further deepens the invalidation that they're experiencing and then it extends to the mental health care system and then people stay away from the mental health care system and it's just um 
it's frustrating. So I wish that therapists in those cases would say, I'm not competent to provide treatment for you. Here are some referrals of people that can. And like, just leave it at that. Um, and then it's not like people are, you know, um, internalizing that there's something wrong with them. Like even where they're supposed to be getting help. Like, yeah. So that's my take. <laughs> that's my rant. Yeah. Honestly, it's a valid rant. It's a solid rant. 10 out of 10. Thanks. And, Thank uh, you. yeah, needs to be said. Yeah. Well, Jules, I really appreciate you chatting with me today and just like hanging out, offering your perspectives and your, um, your expertise. And yeah. I'm going to have to have you on again to talk more in depth about like more specific things. We did like a whole kind of, totally. I feel like we did a whole crash course of like how BP develops and blah, 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 which is great. Remind me of your TikTok again. At doc for the number four, the people. Um, on TikTok, where I talk a lot about BPD and like other kinds of, um, uh, you know, mental health struggles and my own mental health struggles as well. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Juliet M. Perfect. Perfect. Um, yeah, just thank you so much. And I hope you have a really good rest of your day. Yeah, you too. So, Thanks for having yeah. me. And like, it's really good to like see you and talk to you face to face. And I will yes. come back anytime. Anytime. Amazing. So that's it for this episode. I really want to thank Jules again for coming on and chatting with me. That was super dope. And it was really good to hear how invalidation is kind of on a spectrum and where trauma can fit in there. And speaking of next episode, I'm going to dive into trauma responses and invalidating environments. So if you've ever wondered, well, my childhood wasn't that traumatic, was it? Wasn't it? Was it? Wasn't it? I don't know. I have no idea what's going on there. I'm looking to clear that up with you and help you understand what an invalidating environment can look like, what emotional invalidation means, and how to recognize that invalidation, and then learn to validate yourself. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Quiet, not silent. We can create a perfect world in our heads.